0: Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hey, everyone. So I am with Rachel DeManico. You may remember her from episode 28, when uh, which was titled When Trauma Meets Trauma. And she spoke about her personal experience with intimate partner violence and her work uh, subsequently with older adult victims of domestic violence and how that plays out for her and what issues come up for her as she's navigating this work. Let me reintroduce her because you might not have listened to that episode. So she is an LMSW and she graduated from Malloy University with her bachelor's in social work, where she also happened to have been awarded the student of the year Uh, award for her excellent performance. And then she received her master's degree in 2021 from Fordham University. And she has worked with a couple of different populations, including LGBTQ youth, justice-involved individuals, housing insecure veterans, and currently she is the Elder Justice Specialist at the Weinberg Center, which is located in the Bronx, New York. And there she provides case management, counseling, and advocacy for older adults who are seeking shelter from abuse. Today, she's going to present a case or talk about a composition of cases and really kind of focus on the process of what she experiences or what one goes through when clients express their love. She's going to talk about one specific case in which a client uh, had a very exploitative relationship with a neighbor. And as usual, as we do here, we're going to help Rachel focus on her personal challenges that enter the professional relationship. So welcome back, Rachel.
1: Thank you for having me. I'll start off by giving some context. So Ms. B uh, was 72 years old at the time when she first came into our shelter program. And this was prior to me actually working here. It was October of 2021. And she was living alone in her apartment in Manhattan when she was first referred to us by, it's called VEPT, which is the Vulnerable Elder Protection Team. And they're located in New York Presbyterian Hospitals throughout New York. And the reason why they referred her is because there was some significant concerns about the role her neighbor had been playing in her life while she was living within the community and some things that had occurred in the hospital. So at this point, Miss B is ambulating primarily with a walker. She had a 24-hour aid, and her cognition was substantially declining and it was deemed that she her dementia was progressing she was diagnosed with dementia uh, by a neurologist and she also had been undergoing chemotherapy treatment for colon cancer so her her health was continuously declining and she found herself in the hospital after a fall and during her hospital stay there was concerns about her neighbor sarah who had been presenting herself in a way that wasn't accurate she was identifying herself as uh, Ms. B.'s POA, which she was not her POA, and was also identifying herself as Ms. B.'s healthcare proxy, which she also was not her healthcare proxy.
0: So, power um, of attorney and healthcare proxy. Okay. Yes. So, Sarah was
1: stating to staff at the hospital that she was um, both of these agents for Ms. B. when she was not, mm-hmm. and was trying to make healthcare decisions on behalf of Ms. B. when she shouldn't have been. So Miss B's family, her two nieces, who are both Miss B's healthcare proxy and power of attorney, were alerted to this and were incredibly concerned because it had come out that um, during her hospital stay, when Ms. B did not have capacity to make any decisions, at this point it was deemed, she didn't have capacity to make discharge-related decisions, she wasn't oriented to person, place, or time, and this person, Sarah, was trying to get Miss B to sign documents that would sign a codicil to her will, which would leave Sarah with a substantial amount of money of Miss B's life savings and was also giving money to people that Miss B's nieces had never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um so, because of that, there was significant concerns that financial exploitation was most likely happening prior to this hospitalization and that. You know, at that point, the hospital staff felt that Sarah should not be allowed near Miss B because they were concerned of other aspects of psychological abuse that was potentially happening and and manipulation and undue influence. Um, And it it was at that point where it was felt that Miss B wouldn't be able to return safely to the community and needed a safe place away from these people in her life that were exploiting her. And that's how she came into our shelter program. So from that point she had been here for several months when I first started working here and she was one of my first clients I started working with and it it was apparent that she had significant cognitive impairments she was on a memory care floor she's on an advanced memory care floor and oftentimes people who are on advanced memory floors it's going to progressively their dementia or their Alzheimer's is going to progressively advance you don't see people come off of those floors So when I first started working with her, um, this was all very new to me. So I was utilizing different techniques that I hadn't been aware of or haven't really utilized in any capacity before. So I was mostly doing reminiscence therapy with her, you know, just recalling past life events, um, understanding her history, doing a bit more supportive counseling when she was having, when she was becoming emotionally activated about her surroundings or when she was feeling more confused and disoriented and and she also was experiencing hallucinations. Um, She was having visual hallucinations that her roommate was a cat so really helping her uh, understand the emotions she was experiencing and helping her cope with these hallucinations but never identifying that what she was experiencing was hallucinations because she wouldn't be able to understand that. But after several months of working with her, I started to notice significant improvements in her memory. She started to remember conversations we had weeks prior. She started to remember who I was, which she wasn't doing in the very beginning. Her use of language was so much more robust. Um, She was able to articulate her emotions more significantly and with so much more substantial um, oomph to it, I would say. I don't know how else to describe it. There's so much more depth to her that was coming out. Um, and eventually at that point, I felt it would be appropriate to try using CBT techniques with her because she was, you know, as her memory was improving, she was having memories of trauma and memories of the person that caused her harm. And so I started to utilize CBT with her, started utilizing different techniques within like art therapy. And over time, it became apparent that she was somebody that should not be on an advanced memory floor. And we advocated for her to be removed from that floor and be put on a floor that is much more independent now. Wow. And she is a, yeah, she's, it's substantially different. and, And this isn't something people had ever really seen before in somebody that was on a type of floor that she was on or had prior, when she first had gotten here you know, so many of the staff that were working with her had seen her in this one light and had seen her as somebody that didn't have decision-making capacity. And now here she is on an unlocked unit and is able to ambulate with a walker. Now she was using a wheelchair before, able to participate in activities, able to read again. It was just this significant change in her
0: So was that a misdiagnosis or a miracle case or your work with her really helped to develop her cognition? I'm not
1: entirely sure. I think it was a myriad of so many different elements working all at once. I think she, when I first started working with her, you know, I think there was a bit more motivation that was coming out in her, I noticed, and she was wanting to take part in more activity. So she was using her body more. She had more behavioral activation She wanted to be in PT and OT now, which is something she didn't want to do before. So I think it was that mixed in with me regularly visiting with her two times a week and creating this routine for her and utilizing cognitive behavioral therapy, I think, also really helped her. And, you know, when she first got to us, she didn't know why she was there. And that was something that came up. She would ask me, you know, what what brought me here? And I would sit with her and talk with her about how she came into our shelter program. And I think that also helped really shift her perspective on reorienting her to who she is and why she's currently in the place she's at. Um, And so from, from that point, it was very interesting because now she has all these memories that have just come back to her. And with that, there's been a lot of, I think, emotional expressions for her towards me that have come up where she has point blank told me that she's romantically in love with me. Mm. and that for me that was something I never experienced before in a therapeutic relationship and so that I think is something I'm still navigating with her because it's something that often comes up in the work we're doing where she'll identify that she is attracted to me and is insightful enough to recognize where that's coming from but for me it brings up uncomfortable feelings because I never want to make her feel like she can't come to me to tell me about this and I want to help her work through it but also you know having somebody tell me that they're sexually attracted to me that they're in love with me is not something I ever anticipated ever coming across before excuse me coming across before um so that's kind of where I'm at with it It, it's very interesting and very complex But I've I've noticed that it comes up in so many different ways in the work that I'm doing, these expressions of love, whether it's romantic, whether it's sexual, whether it's somebody expressing that they love me as like a daughter figure, the type of um, the use of language and like pet names I'll be given by people. And so it's really interesting. And I know I just threw a lot at you to give you all this context, Um, but I'm, I'm curious what your perception is of this and this type of transference and the work that I do and that so many social workers are doing in so many different agencies and settings, this is something I'm sure that comes up quite often,
0: yeah. I mean, I think it depends. it's 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 a fascinating uh, experience to have mm-hmm. because I think that it's not rare. And what I generally think that it symbolizes is that, you know, a lot of folks haven't had. That positive regard, that unconditional love experience of mm-hmm. somebody who listens to them, understands them, is empathic,, oh, who wouldn't be seduced by that? Um, so I think it's quite common to fall in love with your social worker or a therapist. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have some individual representation for each person. as you're saying, mm-hmm. you have some you have some ideas or you said she has some ideas about her love for you.
1: We. Together, we've kind of formulated an idea around where it's coming from, because she's had this, like all these memories come back for her. She's been able to reflect on all the past times she's partaken in therapy. And and she realized she was like, oh, my gosh, like I've been in love with every one of my therapists before. Okay, And so that was really interesting. And the more we we looked into it, I kind of started to identify that she has found herself falling in love with people in powerful positions. And people that she knows that she um, may be unethical or she can't attain because of her sexuality in the past. Even the person, her neighbor that was causing her harm, she disclosed to me that she was actually in love with her. And so it it brought out this dynamic for her of power and control where she tends to fall in love with people that have some type of power over her, where there's power differentials.
0: That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So you have an understanding of that. I'm not sure what you do with that. You know mm-hmm. how you manage that. Um, it sounds like you're trying to help her understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, we're going to get to the impact on you. But um right now, we're in the transference realm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, just my thought or wonderment is, was she out? Was she an out lesbian to her? Family or loved ones,
1: is it something that she
0: accepted in herself? Mm-hmm. You know, she she didn't immediately
1: identify herself as a lesbian, but she said she always was in love with women. And it wasn't until more recently where she said, I am a lesbian. and and when I talked with her more about that, I think it was she always accepted who she was, but she was always very fearful of how other people would perceive her, including her family. And she's always said, I have a feeling like they know. But I've never actually explicitly told them that I'm a lesbian or that I love women.
0: Has she ever, she's 72 years old. Has she ever mm-hmm. been in a lesbian relationship?
1: She has. She has, she's been in several relationships with women and they were all very short-lived relationships. Um, and there were relationships with people that there were power differentials. And one of the more recent ones she had was with her boss, actually. She was in a a relationship with her boss for several months. And so they never really became these um, substantial long-term relationships. They're always very short-lived ones.
0: Yeah, it's curious, you know, before you just explained that, it made me think about, okay, so she's told her helping professionals and maybe that is safe, right? To fall in love with a helping professional because mm-hmm. maybe on some level, she knows that there's boundaries And that you wouldn't cross it unless she's expressed Mm -hmm. some fantasy that you would. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how in-depth she's expressed this to you and her goal of being in a relationship with you, or she just felt the need to let you know that she's having these feelings,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
0: Because And this is an interesting thing when a uh, client develops an erotic transference because you want to explore it, but you don't want to entertain it and kind of give them hope that something could develop. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it can get interpreted or misinterpreted as your exploration is interest. Mm -hmm. But given that she has cognitive deficits, real cognitive deficits, and yes, she's improved dramatically, which is really wonderful Mm -hmm. and kind of speaks to the work that you've done with her. I don't know what her, you would know what her capacity is to really process this. And I think that that should be a guiding force also in terms of how much you attempt to, in addition Mm -hmm. to how seductive is it to actually process this with her mm-hmm. any thoughts around that
1: yeah I mean that that's definitely when it first came up I I remember I told myself I was like don't have any like facial reaction just stay like very calm because I was it was very unexpected that that's where it was going and I just kind of was like oh, okay can can you tell me more about that what what do you mean by attraction and like asking her to explain it more to me and I, the way I've always handled it, I, I find myself redirecting, like not quickly, but as I'll, like I'll ask a few questions and then I try to like redirect it a bit, so it's not entirely focused on me because I find myself feeling uncomfortable by it, and I, you know, I'm thinking I don't want her to look at me in that way, and I don't want to entertain this for her to have these fantasies that she could believe could possibly turn into something, and. It's really interesting because you know we we it came up again recently and and she said to me she used the word hope there's like for her it's like this hope that one day something better is going to happen and I kind of sat with that for a minute and I was like I don't know how to respond to that like I, I you know I I'm curious I want to ask more questions but it it's this challenge internally like if I was to explore this more what is she going to think if I'm asking more questions about it.
0: Well, I think that is one way of kind of redirecting, because if she's talking about hope, she's talking about her life circumstances Mm -hmm. and not really being happy with where things are. So Mm -hmm. what kind of hope does it provide for her? Mm -hmm. Right. Which isn't really entertaining you as a potential Mm. mate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting into that piece with her. I mean, oh, yeah. the other thought I had was, well, you know, it would be really good to explore what is her understanding of love? Now, what what does that mean to her? Um, yeah. Because it might not be the same as your understanding of love. Yeah. And what is her understanding of, I mean, if she's able to make this interpretation or you're able to make it for her and she understands it, this idea of power and control that she tends to fall in love with authority figures, mm-hmm. what's that about? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's really kind of informative and telling about who she is, and you know, there's a certain unavailability of authority figures, right? Or okay. is there a certain coup when, when if she ever mastered that and her ability, mm-hmm. to, and does that is that connected to the oppression that she experiences or the vulnerability she feels feels as an aging woman? It's kind of curious. Is that her attempt to take back control because she was mm. so exploited? Mm-hmm. Um, and how did that happen? Right. How did, so it's it's so counter to what she's used to. Yeah. And it seems like there could be a lot in there.
1: Yeah. And something that she's stated is that she's always felt this very profound loneliness throughout her life. And when she thinks about love, or to her, love is filling that void in her, her feeling complete. And that she's trying to grasp onto something so she could feel complete and like her life has a meaning. And I think in a way she's still really trying to look for that because most of her sisters got married to men and had children and she herself didn't ever get married, never had a long-term relationship, doesn't have any children. So she feels quite lonely and isolated in her life and is, is looking for something she said, like extraordinary. She wants something bigger than her.
0: Mm. Mm. So in a way that gives her meaning, right? Mm -hmm. The idea to be able to be in love with somebody gives her an identity of, uh, you know, part of a couple, part of, I mean, we are all driven by connection, right? Mm -hmm. That's part of psychodynamic theory and object relations theory. And I think it's true. I mean, look at us, we're in a couple driven society. I mean, everything revolves around coupledom. And so who wouldn't feel lonely and isolated, but there's a difference between whom she makes her focus of Mm -hmm. affection. And that's the real curious piece. So again, when we talk about counter-transference, your reaction to it, you're already saying you kind of want to redirect, stave her off, mm-hmm. um, because it makes you really uncomfortable. And what we have to know is um, could it serve her to explore it and understand it? It mm-hmm. sounds like the way you're speaking about her certainly doesn't sound like a dementia client, right? Mm-hmm. There must still be elements of dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's, you know, she still has some memory impairments. She struggles with remembering names, but in comparison to when she first got here, very different. Like there are are definitely areas of cognition that are, there are impairments, Mm -hmm. but she does have the capacity and agency to, I think, go further and utilize a therapeutic relationship
0: in a way that she previously couldn't. Okay. And she has a history of therapy, right? Yes, long term yeah. therapy and I mm-hmm. see pre cognitive deficit. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. How old was she when she developed dementia?
1: I believe she was diagnosed when she was in her late 60s, maybe like 69.
0: Mm, wow. But early, but not that long ago for her, right? Mm-hmm. It's only yeah. three years. Yeah. Okay. And so, and she's recovering some of her cognition. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does sound like you can work with her psychodynamically right now and I'm not an, ex- I'm not an expert in dementia, so you don't know where the limitations are and how to mm-hmm. kind of make sense of that. But what I can help with is the counter-transference because again, we always want to know who is it serving to pursue something and not to pursue something. So let's, for the purposes of this discussion, assume that she's capable of delving into this and exploring mm-hmm. it. Yeah. What's coming up for you?
1: It, it was f- like the f- first time it, it was brought up. I, I remember like I just like tensed and I was like, I had a feeling it was going to go there almost like I I wasn't anticipating it, but I could kind of tell there was these like tells of hers that made me think that there's something more here for her, like the way she would look at me sometimes or you know, she was calling me very frequently. I would always say, like, I really need you. I need you. I need to be seeing you two times a week. You know, if I, if I don't have if I don't see you two times a week, it was as if, you know, that really disrupted her entire week. So it was all these like very felt like she was very reliant on me. And so when she told me, it was kind of like, oh, wow, I can't believe this is out there now. And I'm also slightly not that surprised by it. Um but I remember feeling very tense and I, it was kind of like this feeling of like, oh, what do I do with this now? I don't know how to navigate this. I don't know how I'm feeling about it yet. And I think I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it because, you know, I, I look at her as somebody that I enjoy doing therapy with and I enjoy spending time with because it's interesting in the type of role I'm in. It's I'm not just doing therapy. I I, I take on so many other roles for our clients because mm. they are so... Um, without community mm-hmm. that you kind of also become this friend to them. You're the one helping them gain access to buy themselves certain items. You're the one bringing them outside, getting them to the beauty parlor. Like there's all these other aspects of it that mm-hmm. the case feels The part, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you're their advocate too. You're the one really like standing up for them and making their needs known to their interdisciplinary care teams and with their families. And so you take on all these different roles for them that I think... Very easily for them, transference comes about because you're this this entity in their life that they don't have typically. Yeah, well, you're or becoming had their before. person.
0: Yeah. Right? Their person. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and how we refer to our partner, right? Mm-hmm. You're my person. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it becomes kind of an intense relationship. And that's why maintaining boundaries is super important. And Mm -hmm. I always say that just because you're seeing a client outside of the office doesn't mean it's no longer professional. It's all about Mm -hmm. how you relate to the client and carry yourself. And then you can meet in unorthodox ways um, to a point. I mean, everything you just said is involved in part of the job. I think the reaction you're having is completely normative, and it brings me back to uh, my first instance of you know, having uh, an erotic transference directed at me, and I felt mm-hmm. the same way. I had no idea how to handle this. No idea. And it is overwhelming, and you don't want to be seductive, and you want to mm-hmm. be able to understand it, and it touches on our buttons and all these things. So it's okay that you feel that way. It doesn't feel good, but it's Okay. Um, and I think it's important to have good supervision when, you mm-hmm. know, this kind of a transference develops. Um, I will say that it gets easier in time. The more that it happens, more that it happens, as with all aspects mm-hmm. of the work, the easier right. it gets. And, <laughs> you know, now I think it's kind of challenging. It's in, in a fun way um, mm-hmm. because I know how to manage it. Um, and, again, mm-hmm. it depends on, you know, you mentioned earlier in our discussion about capacity, Mm -hmm. depends on the client's capacity you know when it gets to the point that that's all they can focus on and no matter how much redirecting or Mm -hmm. exploration you do and it's just kind of this persistent but i love you or Mm -hmm. you know will you go out with me and why why not i don't really understand and and they can't move from that then it becomes time to transfer them right Mm -hmm. to somebody else but certainly doesn't sound like that situation here Mm
1: -hmm. and so
0: i would um ask you to think more about what it, what it is that is uncomfortable about it like what is mm. it i don't know if you know right now mm-hmm. but maybe one way of exploring that is i'm going to ask you about other situations cuz you said you find this frequently sometimes romantic sometimes not just just mm-hmm. a just a feeling of warmth and love towards you and so do you notice within you a difference when there's different types of love directed at you or it all makes you uncomfortable. Yeah,
1: yeah no, definitely. I definitely notice a difference. Um like there are some clients who have advanced dementia who will say I love you and you know, I'll say it back because of the fact that I've talked about it with my colleagues like how how should we navigate that? And and for them it, there's a lack of judgment and understanding that it's a form of communication for them and to hear it back can be very reassuring, especially when, if they're feeling scared or fearful. So in those moments, I will say it back, which was something I kind of had to come around to because I wasn't sure how to navigate it. But with clients who don't have dementia and don't have cognitive impairments, it's very interesting. I'm thinking of one client in particular who she'll always call me honey or baby and I do feel warm fuzzy feelings from that. I'm like, oh, that, that's very sweet that she identifies me in that way. And But then I'm also, there's that other part of me that's like, how does this interrupt our therapeutic relationship? How is this gonna get in the way when we're doing therapy? Because it's not within like the therapy session it comes out, it's more so if I bring her something, like if I got her a new pair of shoes and she'll be like, oh, thank you. I love you, baby. Thank you so much, honey. That's when the, those terms of endearment come about. And so it's like, I don't really respond to them. And I don't, re- I won't say it back, but sometimes I'm like, I don't know how to navigate this. This is very different for me because it's not something that makes me feel uncomfortable. I actually, you know, it makes me feel kind of good.
0: Well, part of me says maybe there's nothing to navigate if it's not harmful. But again, it depends. Is it cultural? Is it mm-hmm. generational? Right. Is it mm-hmm. a way to undo your power and authority, mm. bring you to her level? No, because yeah. you are inherently as a social worker, we are in positions of authority and mm-hmm. that can be really uncomfortable especially for somebody who's older and is so dependent on somebody much younger and it 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 levels the playing field sometimes that's worth interpreting sometimes you just leave it alone mm-hmm. and so and and then again what creates that decision is it well it doesn't bother me so i'm not going to address it mm-hmm. or or would it be helpful a learning moment for the client to to have that um, mm-hmm. addressed and by not right. addressing it are you avoiding that so mm-hmm. it's very individualistic i think you have to understand its representation because mm-hmm. i wouldn't say you know listen for anybody who calls you honey or baby tell them that that's not appropriate it makes me <laughs> uncomfortable it depends on who they are
1: right Yeah. And I think there is a lot of aspects of culture that come into play, especially with this particular client. You know, she's from the South. She's from Georgia. These terms of of endearment are ones she uses quite often. But she's also so far away from her family that I think for her to feel like she has some semblance of community by using those terms of Mm -hmm. endearment Mm -hmm. are helpful to her and make her feel good
0: that she gets to use those terms for other people. If you can make a therapeutic argument or consideration about why it's helpful, then there's your answer. Mm-hmm. And you're also saying she's from the South. I mean, they call the store clerk honey and baby, <laughs> right? I mean, really? Right. So if it's right. it's common, it's her culture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the fact that it makes you feel good doesn't mean that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. sometimes it is wrong Mm because you don't want to serve yourself you don't want to oh well I kind of like that it's cute makes me feel important or warm fuzzy feelings Mm -hmm. but sometimes things can feel good and be therapeutically appropriate Mm -hmm. it's okay (laughs) right I think that's where I get
1: caught in my head a bit like are these feelings are are the feelings that coming coming about for me are they distracting me from looking at this more critically
0: that That's why supervision you know, so yeah. important. get mm-hmm. to process this. Exactly. And hopefully you have an astute mm-hmm. supervisor who can help you because sometimes supervision requires a dose of therapy right? <laughs> to try and right. understand who you are and where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. What's guiding you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you have that kind of love. Is there another mm-hmm. kind
1: of love? I typically have come across you know, that friendship type of love. And then I think there's also like with, with the terms of endearment more so where I'm identified more as like a daughter figure to somebody, particularly to um, mothers whose daughter were, was the one causing them harm. I've noticed that comes up a lot where I where I think there's this transference happening where I'm, I'm taking on the role of a daughter to them, they feel like, or are they're projecting these feelings onto me that, they wish they could to their daughter, but they can't. And Mm. so that's something I've noticed that's come up before. Mm. Something I'm still, I think, trying to navigate. And I, I think it would be helpful to, you know, talk about it with them to, to identify it for them. But also at the same time, is it helpful for them to identify me in that way? Is it causing them to have positive feelings? And that's something I, I'm still trying to navigate.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, on the one hand, you're providing a corrective emotional experience, right? Because mm-hmm. I often think about therapy as reparenting and mm-hmm. you're re-childing in a way. Right. You're yeah. right, replacing them. um, And that um, there's nothing wrong with them transferring that need onto mm-hmm. the therapist. And yet mm-hmm. now that brings up a whole nother thought for me about how need is seen as something wrong, right? Not only Mm -hmm. for the client, but a lot of therapists have a hard time when their clients start to express these things because I don't want you to get too dependent on me. Mm -hmm. But like a baby needs to be soothed in order to self-soothe, people need to depend in order to become independent. And -hmm. if that's her need, right, and this is corrective for her to have somebody that she can transfer really what she's transferring is the loss onto you. Another aspect is timing of these interpretations. It's not like right away, if it makes, say you were somebody that it made uncomfortable, that that Mm -hmm. kind of transference. You can say, you know, I'm not your daughter. Um, I just want to be clear that I'm your therapist. That's a defense. That's because Mm -hmm. the therapist is uncomfortable with that feeling. So allow a client to have that feeling when they are ready, when their ego is strong enough, when you've built that up, for them, Mm -hmm. then you help them mourn the loss of that relationship that they had because there's pain in there. And what happens when your relationship with that client ends, either through you leaving the work for, you know, this workplace Mm -hmm. or something coming up in their life that they're, that's that you've now compounded the loss. Right. Potentially. Mm -hmm. Because then you're going to get into a situation was can I keep in touch with you? potentially, and Mm -hmm. then you have to reject them. And so in time, I think what your goal is to help them process the pain in not having the daughter that they, or their daughter relationship that they hope they could Mm -hmm. have. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think something that I often feel is this sense of what if I'm not, not meeting that need for them? What if I'm doing a poor job of meeting, being that person for them, which is kind of like the small voice in the back of my head. And I think it comes from this place of like wanting to be liked and wanting to be, you know, the person that your client needs in the moment and and being the one to help them, which is something that I also can't, I don't know if it comes into play that often, but in some particular cases like this, I think it does.
0: Uh, about the wanting to be liked and kind of maintaining mm-hmm. her her good feelings towards you, mm-hmm. yeah, right. I know, that's under again. That's under all everything you're saying is completely understandable and relatable to to feeling this way. I think that's something that you have to work on because what you want to be attuned to in the client is when you disappoint her or when you don't meet her fantasy mm-hmm. of what you are to her, want her to be, and help her help her work that through, Uh, Mm -hmm. be able to ask her, how have I disappointed you? Tell me Mm -hmm. about that and be able to tolerate the not so good feelings at that, whatever time it becomes, Mm -hmm. right? That's again, that's something I'm telling you. It took me years to have fun with, <laughs> right? Yeah. At first, you want to stay out of the equation. Like, right. let's this this is about you. And mm-hmm. well, I'm glad to be here to help you work through X, Y, and Z, as long as it doesn't relate to me, because that's terrifying. And then in time, it's like I, lo- I love that because it's mm-hmm. challenging. It's not in a narcissistic way. Oh, I get to talk about me, but like it's just fun when it's um. I think one of the great ways that we help clients is through the transference. When Mm -hmm. they can engage in discussion and exploration and process the transference to you, that's when the work is really alive. Because Mm -hmm. my understanding of clients is that the way that they're relating to us in the session is often a reflection of what goes on outside, right? Mm -hmm. And so what better way to work that through is then through the Transference right. and being able to address these mm-hmm. things head on, but you know I, everything that you're discussing is exactly why the work is so difficult and challenging. <laughs> right? As much as you love it, and as much as you talked about loving working with this population, it's it's the scary it's the scary part. It's the really challenging mm-hmm. part, and it's the part that makes it emotionally draining because you are being. Like to be really good at this, you're doing what you know you need to be doing, which is processing Mm -hmm. these feelings that are coming up in you. So it's Mm -hmm. not just about the client. You are part of the work. You're part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if a lot of folks who go into this field ever either know that or realize just what that means once they're really in it.
1: Yeah. And when I was in school, that was not something I had a full awareness of. Like, I know we would talk about it in terms of like ethical dilemmas and how to navigate these relationships. But once you're actually in it and, Mm -hmm. you know, this experiential knowledge starts to come about, Mm -hmm. you're kind of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is actually happening. Like we've talked about this before, but I'm actually experiencing it now. and, And how do I actually go about this?
0: Well, this is why I always say that I think that this work is a privilege and a luxury because not only are we going growing professionally, but we're growing personally. I mean, what mm-hmm. a benefit. Doesn't mean it's not training, but it is a benefit <laughs> because you work through so much of your own stuff as you're helping mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. Right? Well, thank you so much. This was, this was fun for me, anyway. I hope it was for you. At least <laughs> yeah, thought provoking, right? Thought provoking, <laughs> and uh, I hope you have a bit of a new lens in in moving forward in your in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Good. Thanks for sharing your work. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions I need some help, point me in any direction Clinical guidance is what I need To help me become who I'm meant to be I've been searching for a teacher Another point of view And I've been asking myself What would Dr. Myers do?